Hi, I'm Jessie Draper. I am first and foremost a mom, a boy mom to be exact, a boy mom who invests in female-founded companies. Yep, the joke's on me. I'm the founder of Halogen Ventures, a former entrepreneur and creator of an Emmy-nominated television series on technology. My mission is to support women and help raise awareness about the biggest issues facing society, women, and families today, starting with solving childcare. From celebrity guests to founders and politicians, everyone came from a family somewhere. And I want to hear from you, the families of America, on how we can make change because I can't do this alone. Let's get started. We have monumental work to do. Mommy, mommy, mommy. Giselle Hale is a mom, advocate, and businesswoman who's currently the mayor of Redwood City, California. At an early age, Giselle learned from her dad the importance of taking an active role in her community. That's inspired her path to public service. Before being elected to city council, Giselle served on the Redwood City Planning Commission and on the board of the Redwood City Education Foundation. She was also a leader with a national organization helping secure sick days and parental leave for work across the country. Giselle and her husband Brian live in Redwood City with their two daughters. Okay, well here we are with Giselle Hale. And Giselle, I have had you on my Instagram live, which went awry, technical glitches, but we are today on Zoom and audio. So we hopefully won't mess this up. I am so grateful to have you back. So you are the mayor of Redwood City. And doing such incredible work. Today, I'd love to start with just like, what's your mom win of the week? You know, today I would say for me, it's just survival. My husband's been gone for five days on a golf trip and I am alive. And, you know, it's Friday, so I'm there and I'm just, I see the weekend, which is also crazy, but I survived. So that's, that's my mom win. (laughs) Oh, what's a mom win this week? Let's see. Well, we have daily chores for the girls and they switch off daily. And we had this issue where, you know, there's seven days in the week. And so it's odd. And so then like you can't set a chart based on the day of the week, created all this frustration. So we moved to a weekly system. So there's a set of chores that one girl does one week and a set of chores one girl does the other week. And that is like, reducing the daily friction around chores. So pretty, it was like a process innovation that we came up with. So pretty excited, pretty excited about that. I love, I love the innovation there. And then also, well, and problem solving just in general, the chores, like we have started to try to do some chores, but I'm just impressed that they do regular chores. We've started doing this thing where we're kind of like, okay, if you need a little cash, cause you want to buy that you know, lollipop or Pokemon card pack, we will give you a chore, but they're not quite at the age that they're like consistent enough. Okay. We're going to talk offline then about a system that we use because think about it. Nobody pays you to do chores. That's a part of being in the household. So we actually don't pay them for the chores. We do give them an allowance, but everybody has to do the chores. If you live in the house, that's the deal. (laughs) Everyone has to do the chores. That's their rent. Yeah. That's their or whatever. yeah, of course, because you because you live here, and so you're a part, you're a contributor. I love that perspective. Yeah. Okay. You know, I'd love to talk about some parent news of the day, and you know, we've had quite a few guests bring up subsidizing childcare costs. You know, we're really looking for solutions, and I thought you'd have a really great perspective on this. You know, I was reading an article written by Elizabeth Aguilera, and it's called "I'm Already Stressing Out: Families to Face Bigger." bills for subsidized childcare as California ends waivers. 
California mm-hmm. helps low-income families afford child care through several different programs. For most families, the programs are free, but others must pay a share of their subsidized child care costs. So what, what do you think about this? And from a policy perspective, what are you thinking about in terms of what we need to change for subsidizing these costs? Yeah, well, so let's first like set the stage for the average family, right? And I'm going to talk more about the Bay Area because that's where I'm most familiar with the statistics, but I'm going to assume there's some sort of similarities, you know, across the state and probably in some degree across the country that we are special here for sure because of our high cost of housing. But if you look at California and the Bay Area, things were already bad pre-pandemic. People like to forget about that, but 81% cost increase since 2014 in the Bay Area. For child care. And then think about how the cost of housing was already going up. So you take you take that and you really have the two largest expenditures for a family's budget in a month become housing and child care. And in the Bay Area, child care has recently, if you have kids, become either equal to or higher than the cost of rent. So all of that is adding up to a really difficult situation to keep people here, families here, and to keep them in the workforce. And not, you know, consequentially coming out of the pandemic, we have seen a 33-year low in women's workforce participation. And this is impacting our businesses. You know, my my favorite coffee shop in Redwood City just closed. Woman owned. She's a mom. She did amazing things with that little business of hers. And she took a break at the end of the summer because she said, I cannot, I can't hire staff. I can't find people to work for me. And I can't run this coffee shop on two people. And so it is impacting our economy and it's impacting, you know, the feeling of our communities as these businesses and these individuals get pushed out. So um, there are a lot of solutions that range from like sort of the short term. And I can talk about what we've done in Redwood City to the midterm to like what would rethinking the entire system look like, which I think is a really important conversation to be having at a time like this. And there's so much we can do. You know, what we've done in Redwood City, and I was actually in an event last night where somebody came up to me and said, I was doing research on this and I found that Redwood City has the most progressive policies on locating a childcare. You know, in most cities. That's because of you, Giselle. That's because that's of because you. when you elect moms, this is what happens. Yeah, <laughs> 100%. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it was another mom's too. But yes, it really was having that person who knew. It's not that the other people are bad or the other council members are bad people. It's that they're not feeling that personal pain on their pocketbook. They're not connected to that problem personally, and they don't know how bad it had gotten. So we made it by right to permit childcare. What does that mean? Well, in most cities right now, if a childcare applies for an application, you or I or the neighbor next to them can stop it. You can say, I don't want to hear screaming, crying, laughing children. You can stop it. And think of all the things we can't do that with. We can't do that with dogs. We can't do that with, you know, the the leaf blowers. But you can do that with children in our state. And as a result, the number of places that you could actually put a child care is increasingly small. And, And then just think about if you're the provider, how much time are you going to spend invested in a specific spot if the end of the day, you're not even going to get the permit. So we don't even know about the childcare that was attempting to get started because the process was so arduous. So we got rid of that. We said childcare is by right. Enjoy the sounds of children next to you. And actually, I can hear it right now because I actually live next door to a childcare. The woman next door to me runs a childcare out of her home. 
It is how she feeds her family. Her mother ran it before. There are children in Redwood City. There are adults in Redwood City whose children go there and they went there themselves. And I think that's pretty cool. And my daughters went there when I was first, you know, a mom. Oh my gosh, that's so great. So it's like I walked them next door. They weren't in my house, but I could hear them. And, and I think that's wonderful. We should have that. So there's a lot of other things. So I think zoning is one big issue that could be solved really easily. The wages are a really big issue. So it's becoming, there are now an entire category of jobs in the state of California that we need to like live and that are now becoming jobs that the people doing them can't afford to do them. And we're seeing the strains of that. And childcare is one of them. So if you're on, if you're doing a childcare job, you know, maybe you're making 15 to $22 in the Bay area for a household of two, just to pay rent, you would need to be making $28 an hour. So it, it becomes pretty tough, right? Yeah, to see even where to be the job. This is something one of our companies, Brella is really focused on paying their educators more in their child childcare facilities, because I mean, we're losing educators. I just saw another article in a podcast a couple of weeks ago, we said that, that I think it was like California lost 90,000 child care workers. And I just saw another that said 100,000. And I'm like, this is terrifying. I don't know if it was California. Yeah. And we're losing, we're losing teachers. We're losing mental health care workers. Yeah. All these services we would consider to be, you know, and very important to our quality of life. We're, we're losing because of that. Completely. Well, yeah. I'd love to dig into, you know, you were mentioning that there's a child care facility. Oh, I want to say one more thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. When there you talk about those vouchers, here's one of the issues. The cost of childcare is outpacing inflation by more than 3%. So all of those, those numbers don't get calculated right now fast enough to keep pace with what's happening. But of course, the impacts are felt immediately by the families who are paying more for everything else and then are going to have to pay more for childcare and still have their same income. So it's so interesting because you said that. And as a venture capitalist, I'm like, I can solve that problem with technology. Like, innovations <laughs> happen faster. Oh, I know. I know. Software. I know. I know. Yeah. So that's great. That's really good to know and very helpful for me. And, you know, I'd love to dig in and just kind of hear what does your personal child care look like? And, and then what did it look like when you were running for council? Yeah. So we've had, we've kind of had pretty stable, I mean, we, we've had a stable situation. We have used in-home daycare, which is pretty unique to California. You can get certified to have a certain number of children in your home. That ends up in California being a very important component to infant childcare because the number of children, the ratio of children to providers, when you're talking about the, under the age of two is much lower and it becomes really hard to provide that. So a lot of in-home, it's a lot of single moms who are trying to take care of their own kids, stay stay housed. And so it's actually a really important component. So we did that. We've also always had au pairs. So the au pair program, everybody always says to me, oh, how is that different from a nanny? I mean, night and day. A nanny is an individual you personally hire. And au pair is a part of a program through the U.S. State Department where people are coming into the country for a cultural exchange, first and foremost, and to take care of children. And the whole program has very strict parameters in terms of the number of hours in the day, days of the week they can work, the requirements you have to have a bedroom that they can sleep in that's all their own. So we're very, we're very privileged that we have that, especially in the Bay Area, an extra room. But that said, when you do all of that, and the wages are also set by the state, after all of that, once you have two kids, it ends up being the cheapest form of childcare. 
even less expensive, much less expensive than daycare. So for us with two kids and one extra bedroom, that that's made sense. And, and I think we're on our sixth au pair right now. And it's great. We've always had Brazilians. And so we know way more about Brazil than most families. I was an exchange student through a congressional program in high school. So I just feel really connected to the young women who come and wanting to help them have a really great cultural experience too and be a good host mom to them. So that's what we've done. But you know, like most families, it's a patchwork. I, My husband and I both work well over the number of hours of childcare that we have in a week. And we don't have family living in the area. So it becomes... You know, hiring this teenager, this, that, the other, you know, it's, it's tough. And often, more often than not, a lot of dividing and conquering. So last night, we both got to go to an event together. That's somewhat rare, unfortunately. Right now, we're in a period of not having a lot of date nights because we lost some of our go-to sitters. So, you know, it is, it is really challenging, you know, for families here. And I, and I, I, I feel that personally. It is. It is really challenging everywhere. And that's why we're doing this show to shine this light on it and just kind of find solutions. And it sounds like you really are actively creating solutions. So we appreciate that so much. You know, how you have an interesting background as well. And how does your current child care differ from how you grew up? Oh, wildly different. You know, I grew up in the Midwest. I was raised by a single mom who very admirably, with no college degree, started her own business. She started a marketing consulting firm. She had no background in it and became pretty successful. And so she took us everywhere with her. I like to tell when I was first getting into the business world, um, people would ask about my experience. I was like pretty young and I'd say, well, I have 22 years of marketing experience. (laughs) Because as a you know, I don't know, a six-year-old, I had sat with my mom at pitch meetings when she was pitching ideas to clients. And I'd gone with her to the printers to look at proofs. And so I literally grew up with like a working mom who just was like, I'm just going to take them with me everywhere. We didn't get to do a lot of extracurriculars as a result. And then I started working. She had a my sister when I was 12. I started working at age 13 to help support my family. So, and then I became... My sister, my other sister and I became the childcare. So we, we watched my little sister, you know, basically until I, I left home. So, and then my, we did live near family. So occasionally we would go to my grandma's house, but no, I just saw, I saw my mom go through it and the struggles that she had. And then you always, as a parent, want better for your kid. Right. And I have to look at this situation we're in now and feel like, I don't really think it is better than when she had me, and then I think about my daughters and what opportunities will they have to forego so that they can decide between having a really fulfilling career and and having a family. I mean, you you just made a very public decision to step back. And can you tell me a little about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's more complicated as most things are than, you know, just what was sort of publicly out there. But I just ran for the state assembly in what ended up being a very contentious, polarizing race, unfortunately, between two Democratic women. And I I ended up being the target of $1.2 million in outside funding, 500,000 of which was negative attack ads against me. And, you know, I learned a lot through that experience about, you know, 
the process and what you can and can't say. You know, some of the things that were said about me were were lies, but unfortunately are also protected by the First Amendment, you know? So, you know, I got a very front row seat to what is happening in campaign finance. And it was tremendously sad, you know, not for for me. I was sad for voters to be to have like choice taken away from them. And so we we actually, despite all of that, because my husband and I are both marketers by training, we we still made it through. So I made it through this insane primary. Take took so, takes a long time to count the votes. So it was three weeks after the election day. We found out that I still made the top two by 337 votes. And that was definitely a result of our direct, insanely hard work and and creativity, quite frankly. But then looking at the general election, I'm also, I'm a, I'm a pragmatist. You know, I'm, I'm like both an optimist and a pragmatist. And I was like, look, unless I like suddenly have a billionaire friend who will write a $500,000 check, which is how a lot of people get into office in California. That's what it takes. Or you have to completely align with a set of interest groups that are bifurcated way more polarizing than the average electorate is. Roughly, they translate into moderates, which is like all the business interests, and labor, which is all of the workers' interests. And so there's not a lot of space at the table, if you will, for people who are, you know, in the middle, which is, I think, actually where most voters are. So there's a lot of opportunity there, but I just was like, I, I mean, on campaign finance transparency as a, again, as a venture capitalist, I'm looking yeah. for technology to solve these problems. And also yeah. them. this is my podcast and I can say a bad word. I'm sorry if moms are listening in the back, I may have to bleep that out, but that makes me so mad because I know you and I know you are doing such incredible work. And like, so you're saying this 1.2 million, where did that come from? Primarily. Okay came from realtors and apartment associations, which had less to do with my, my my beliefs on property and more to do with a relationship at a very senior level of government that my opponent had. And it came from what, what most of us would kind of think of as conservative interest groups. So what they've done is in is in parts of the country and parts of California where they're, no, they're like, okay, a Republican will never get elected here. It's blue. So what they do then is they back more conservative Democrats who will vote on their issues. So you're talking about oil companies, energy companies, prison guards, like things you wouldn't think of in like what's really a very blue district. But because of the way campaign finance transparency works, all of that gets bundled under something called a dark super PAC. And all that the voter sees is that future PAC sent this. And that, I mean, doesn't that sound lovely? Like, I I like the future. Yeah, Yeah, that sounds great. But it's actually like Chevron, pg Walmart. So voters just are not given enough information. And I think all of this also leads to an electorate that's very much disenfranchised, that believes government is corrupt. And yeah, so it's I think it's overall not great for democracy. But where I netted out was I knew how hard we were going to have to work. I knew what it would take to win. And there was just going to be no way to you know, to get there. And the, the, the stress and strain it had had on my family was immense. I mean, these were attack ads that were associating me with Donald Trump. And I'm, you know, I'm a pretty democratic person and were making all sorts of false claims about me. And, you know, our children, my children, but really our children in this district saw those. I mean, if your kid watches YouTube, they are seeing ads right now about Prop 27 and Prop 30. 
Yeah. I mean, my daughter was like, mom, how are you going to vote on Prop 30? And I was like, whoa, wow, how do you know about this? But look, you know, and they're like, well, and, and then it was, you're a bad mom for letting your children watch YouTube, which is always, you're you're always yeah. a bad mom, first of all. Yeah. You're always a bad mom. And, I, you know, they shouldn't be watching that. Well, you know, look, my daughter's in gymnastics and she's she uses YouTube to like teach herself moves, you know? And it turns out that's not considered kid content. So, yeah. They, so my both of my daughters saw the attack ads against me. One neighbor took one of the ads and nailed it, nailed it to a tree. And it was on the path my children would walk to go to the park. So they were being affronted and accosted by this negativity. And and I think when when companies and interest groups do that, it just opens the door for, you know, <laughs> for nastiness and yeah. for and for violence. So there was another woman last week, the the realtors doxed her. She's a mother. So they printed her mailing her, her home address on a mailer and they sent it to conservative men. Oh my and god. I just don't think there's any there's no space for something like no, like that. So like let's wrong. talk about the issues. Like I can talk about the issues all day long. But my race it it it, it ended up not we didn't get to talk about the issues. Yeah, I mean, and I can hear here. First of all, thank you so much for sharing all of that. And, you know, being so transparent about it. Clearly, there's a problem. I think we're seeing it even more recently with the Los Angeles, the corruption in the Los Angeles government. It's really, I mean, this is just enlightening. And actually, I mean, you reminded me even I'm looking at you and I can see how frustrated you are because you wanted to make this happen and actually make change. And we really need more good people like you in the government. So that's killing me. But we'll get there. Maybe you'll be president and that then you can solve it all. I, <laughs> I would love to to bring it back to something you said earlier about how we kind of rethink it all together, because I keep making this joke slash not a joke, but I do sound crazy about rewriting the Constitution for women, for example, because we are an amendment to the Constitution. And I actually talked to the head of Berkeley Law School, uh, like he's the head of law at Berkeley Law School about it, and asked him a million questions about how we could possibly do this. And it's a very tough, it's a very tough thing to do, but I think we need to like crowdsource this new constitution somehow. So I'm all about rewriting it because what I have learned is we were actually supposed to rewrite the full constitution. I found this article that someone sent me, a Megan Tedford, a friend of mine sent me that Thomas Jefferson had written to James Madison about how we were supposed to rewrite the Constitution every 18 years because the dead should not be ruling the living. And so I look at it like we need more women in there because men don't get the calendar invites and didn't put it on their schedule every 18 years. And we would have kept track of that. I know it. And so that's something that I just like I think about regularly and keeps me up at night. So how do we rewrite the whole situation? I always like to look at history for examples of what we could be doing. You know, why, why, why start from scratch, right? Where, where are times when we've, we've done this? So quick history lesson. I've been a really big advocate for paid family leave because it keeps more women in the workplace. The U.S. is, of course, by far the furthest behind of any industrial nation on this issue. And the reason, it turns out, actually goes back to World War II. So we won that war. And as a result, more of our men came home. And women who had taken their roles during the war were asked to please now step aside and make room for the men. And please, you know, continue to populate the country. Women in Europe 
did not have that advantage. A lot of their men did not come home. And so they were asked to do two jobs. We need you to keep working and we need you to repopulate the country. And as a result, paid leave was a way to make that possible, as was state-funded childcare. So in a weird way, you know, past successes have led to our current failures and the results speak for themselves. You know, I was in Germany this summer and I was an exchange student there 25 years ago on a scholarship from Congress. And my sister there is a mid-level executive at a, uh, like a China company. They make nice China. And it was interesting. It's interesting to look at our trajectories as mothers. We both have two girls. Hers are a little bit older than mine. When she had them, she was basically fully off or part-time until they were six. Oh my gosh. And her job was, was made available to her when she came back. And then she reworked her way up the ladder because the path existed. And that's, you know, and it was merit too. She had to still work really hard to get back to on, on that path. But now when you look at that, it's sort of like, what's, oh, this is going to look weird on the camera, but like, what, what's better? Like, you kind of do this, but then you don't get to go higher or like you take this break and then you can go really high. And so I think we're thinking about this wrong, particularly as we face labor shortages, <laughs> like right. the, the most obvious solution to our labor shortage right now is to make it possible for a lot of women to get back into the workforce. And yet silence, there is nothing being done on the magnitude, like what you're saying and a rewrite level to do that. Right. So that's what we need to do. We need to look at the bigger picture of how this all plays into, into our economy, into our place in the world, and, and look at best practices from the past. Yeah, I mean, you're right. We would solve the labor shortage. We'd solve so many things. Every company would be more successful. I mean, we really need to. Yeah. We're, we're all working towards it. And I know you'll get back in government at some point. Once we, once we fund this company that helps with campaign finance transparency. Don't worry, I'll find it. So, you know, I'd love to talk a little about your amazing husband. So I met Giselle and her husband at one of my best friend's weddings, Amy Gilday, and she's married to a politician. And it was just like this like crew of politicians. I'd never been in quite a circle. And it was really, <laughs> it was really fun. And at the time, I was learning a little bit about political money, I wasn't allowed to give them a I wasn't allowed yes. to give them a gift because yeah. at the time my Crazy, husband right? was at a private equity fund and took yep. funding from government oriented institutions. And so I was just learning. It was just like a, a learning ground for me. And I thought you guys were incredible. But he has been in and out of foster care. And so it was fascinating talking to you about that. So tell me about him, but you guys both were these incredibly successful technology executives. Did yeah. you meet there? Well, Did first, I'm going to take over your question and yeah. just say he married an amazing guy. Yeah. When I was running for the assembly, you know, there's men who are allies and then there's men who are allies. And she married a man who um, he and I both knew each other before either of us were elected to anything. And he was an unrelenting ally for me in this race. And to this day is and we'll call people out for what they did and is actively looking at what are the government side reforms that need to happen right. so that something like this doesn't happen, or at least not in the way that it did. Yeah. So she did well. Brian, and I did well too. So Brian, my husband, he's an interesting guy. He he just turned 40. He is, to him. Yes. He's the vice president of, of growth and previously of also consumer product at DoorDash. He was a VP at Facebook. 
And he also never went to college, has dyslexia that was never treated and was a foster child. And all of those things are related, of course. So his he was taken from his family by a CPS at age eight and was passed through the foster system. And then his extended family ultimately landed with a family in Canada. So and just mostly- to clarify, CPS is Child Protective Services. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So it's interesting. Sometimes people joke about CPS and he's like, that's that's not a joke. Like yeah. that was my life. That was, that was, I've experienced that, you know, and sort of knows the the pros and the cons. I mean, a topic we've been honestly talking a lot about right now in our home is with the changes with Roe, our foster care system is not going to be able to handle the number of orphans. And we both believe that we're going to probably end up with orphanages again in this country. And we're going to see a very rapid increase in the, in the crime rate in about, you know, 16 years. So you know, consequences. Yeah, it's already Uh, happening. I mean, I look at Los Angeles and San Francisco and, you know, you dig into these statistics and it's like, if we got the foster children, you know, if we found them great adoptive homes, we'd have 50% of the homeless off of the streets and, you know, significantly less incarcerated since 70 to 80% of the incarcerated today went through our foster care system. And then that population is just going to expand because of lack of access to abortion. And so an unwanted child often will become a child in trauma, in crisis, and that commits crimes. And that's the, that's what we saw, you know, after Roe came in, it was like, then there was this crime drop. And it was like, oh, was that like a, was that like a policing policy? No, it wasn't. It was a healthcare policy. So, so it's going to be an interesting time. And I think, I don't think people are really prepared emotionally for what that's going to look like, like going back to those areas, you know, you you watch movies with orphanages and they're like, oh, that's so cold and so awful and cruel. And like, that's going to happen very soon. So we, you know, we, we really do understand that, you know, part and he's just, I don't know, he's sort of lucky in a way. He has a brilliant mind and has a personality that, that is okay with sort of struggles and he kind of goes with the flow. And so he kind of made it through, but he knows that he is very much in the minority. And so a lot of the work that I've done on, on policy and service is sort of our family's response to, it could be us. It really could be us. You know, my daughter's dyslexic. And also if you go over to the County jail, a lot of dyslexics there. And actually in California, you have an easier chance of getting diagnosed with dyslexia in jail, in prison, than you do in a public school. What are some of the things you do for someone with dyslexia when you're, you know, as a mom? Yeah, it's incredibly difficult here. So to get diagnosed costs $4,000 out of pocket. It's not considered a medical condition. It's a learning difference and schools don't do it. So most of the kids just get overlooked. And honestly, most of them become the bottom of the curve in your child's class. They're the dummies. You know, that's what they get called. They get labeled. It affects their self-esteem and it leads to other issues. The reality is there's a really, really simple learning method. It's called Orton-Gillum. It's scientifically proven. It has many different variants. And if every teacher in California literally taught that way, It would not only help the children who are neurotypical, it would also help the children with learning differences. It would, it would like raise the tide would raise all the boats. And actually of all places, Mississippi does that. 
Oh, cool. um, so Mississippi is a great place to be born if you're just dis- you happen to be dyslexic. Dyslexia is 15 percent of uh, the population. And the Palo Alto School District did actually recently do some testing and they validated that within their population. But if you don't catch it as a certain age, it becomes almost impossible to, to remediate. But these are our creators, our inventors, our leaders, our CEOs. So, you know, we talk a lot about neurodiversity. It is very common in the foster care population in the homeless population. These are people in society who are simply misunderstood, who have so much to offer. And it's just another to me, like it's a wasted resource not to have these people able to, to bring their best and to have to rely on resources. Like when the solution is so simple and clear, there was legislation last year to require testing in all schools and it unfortunately failed, but that is the answer. The, well, you know, Giselle, I can just tell, I like him sitting here and I can just feel your frustration after having like gone through this whole thing. And I just want to say you are doing such amazing work, like keep fighting for all of us. Like you're literally like some of these issues that you're highlighting. I mean, people are about to hear about on this podcast for the first time. And I mean, you've done so much great work. Don't give up. I just feel like you're, I can feel it. I can feel like the emotion right now. And you are such a light in public policy and beyond. And I want you to run for president. So we're going to keep working towards this because you're going to make such incredible change in this country. So please don't give up. I feel, I feel you down right now. And I want you to, I want to like lift you up because I'm grateful for this work you're doing. I know so many are. It's bringing me to tears. Oh my God, this like podcast makes me emotional. This is the second podcast I'm going <laughs> to cry Thank you. On. I always appreciate the mom love. <laughs> the, um, I mean, it's really, yeah, it's really, really important. I, yeah. So I, okay. How do we, like everyone listening wants to do something to change this. Like mm. what is something we can do? What is a solution you know, for all of the moms and dads who are allies out there, what is a solution and like real tactical advice would be helpful here? Like that, what can we do? What's hands-on that we can do here? Yeah. I mean, well, we've talked about a lot of problems, so it depends on which one, but you know, obviously that's coming. Voting is very important. You know, it's funny. I obviously, I took the step to run for office, but here's the thing. We don't need every woman to run for office, but if every woman started donating to candidates, that would make a big difference. And just like in the investment world, that tends to be more of a man's game. So is political contributing. And it is unfortunately a big part of the the process is the fundraising piece. And so getting more women to, you know, it's funny when I was running, I actually had a ton of support from women. They would really stretch and in their contributions to me, which was so humbling. And I remember talking to one woman and she was like, I've only ever done like nonprofit giving. Like this is a dirty new world. And, and then she ended up getting totally hooked and was just like, like, like I was her horse in the race and she was following along. And I kind of loved it because she's this incredible executive. She's an investor as well now. And I'm like, I want you involved politically. And if it's in this capacity, great. And if someday you run, that's great too. But why do we let it be like the man's talk? The, yeah. the man's work of picking the candidates and backing the candidates and running the candidates like women should have a real important say. And I think especially when you look now at groups like Moms Demand Action for Gun Control, that has worked. Yeah, It has worked to bring more women in through a group. And if you ever read read her book, 
She talks about why she named it Mom's Demand. It was very intentional because moms are pure in their desires to help their children. and, And they're also unabashed and they will fight like a dog for their child and for other children. So I think like I one of the hardest parts of leaving the race, honestly, for me, was the number of women who had come up to me watching my race who said to me, I will never run for office. I don't know how you're doing this. I could never do this. It 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 was so upsetting because I've I've worked, you know, probably 20 years on getting more women into government. And I thought to be the person that's gonna now, you know, keep other people out, you know, it was just heartbreaking to me. And I think there's just a lot more work to do there. So the process matters, you know, who an elected official hears from matters. So being vocal, get to know your local elected officials. Yeah. Write them an email, call them, find out when they have their coffee hour, introduce yourself and, you know, get involved. It's as simple as that. And that could look like sending an email. It could look like going to a meeting. The great thing about the pandemic is all these government meetings that used to happen in person when we were doing bedtime and bath time, they now happen over Zoom. And so you can have Zoom on and be paying attention to what is happening at your school board, what is happening at your city government. And this is the closest layer of government to people. And then you can learn more about whatever your particular issue is. Okay, great. What is the legislation on that issue this year in the state? So if it's foster care, right? What are the bills? Who are the authors of those bills? How can I support them? What do they need? Contact their office. I see you're running a child care bill. I'm really interested in it. Do you have any upcoming webinars on it? Do you, what do you need? Oh, you need a letter of support? Great. I'll get my mom's group to write a letter of support. Like I, I wrote a bill for with Assemblymember Mullen my first year in the city council, which is kind of rare. And I got letters from my colleagues and that bill is now a law. And it didn't take that much you know, to do that. So I really do think get, you know, getting enough people, just a few more people involved would lead to a lot more mom and parent friendly policies. That is so, those are such great pieces of advice. Get involved, get to know, you know, the people kind of leading your city, you know, school system, what what have you, write a letter. And, and I like that you can just kind of tune into the Zoom meetings. That's a great idea. That's a yeah. great idea. When I, and when I was raising for my campaign, I would t- I would ask I would not ask people to donate to my campaign. I asked them to be early investors. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to feel a stakeholder. Yeah. You know, and so it's like, think about it. If like women could think about it as like, OK, you're paying your dues here or you're doing this here, like just do twenty dollars to this school board candidate or what, you know, like build that relationship and that power. Yeah. But we need more moms to do. I agree. I completely agree with everything you've said. And you've also taught me a little about politics in turn, a lot about politics. You've taught me a lot today. Thank you. And so many women out there. But I I agree. No one should be discouraged from running. I mean, I'm a woman in finance. It's different, but it's like, it's a war room sometimes too. And you just have to be bulletproof and just get back out there. And like, you know, we have this saying in my family that's like, just grit your teeth through it. And like, there's terrible people out there. A lot of them hang out on Twitter. And it's a really bad place. But I always, yeah. I, I'm also on this campaign to get more women on Twitter, because I feel like there's a lot of men on Twitter. And we need yeah. to like, just have equal visibility Boys. there. But there anyway, I, I hope you get back out there soon. And I am so proud of everything you're doing as mayor and all the child care that you are 
working towards. I mean, we need so much more. I hope to have you on this podcast again because you are just amazing. So keep up the great work. I would love to end with our goodbye story. And you shared a really fun book that I've, I've never read, so I need to order it. But it's called The Junkyard Wonders by P- Patricia Polacco. And mm-hmm. it says it's about it's a narrative realistic fiction picture book about a girl who goes to live with her father in Michigan. She's placed in a special class where the students are known as junkyard wonders. Their teacher refers to them that way while encouraging them to believe in themselves and use their unique talents. And I guess it's based on a real life event in the author's childhood, which is really cool. So why does this mean so much to you? She's an author. People should add to their collection. I, very few of her books can my husband and I read without crying. Kind of like when you first read, I love you forever, you know, and you're like, doop to do. And then you're like, Oh, you know, you're like losing it. So that's, that's what her books are like. She writes from her life. She was dyslexic and she was, you know, in a, in a time where she was just labeled as a dummy and they were put into mixed classes with the children who were also autistic, who were ADHD, who had other learning differences. And this, this teacher like didn't treat them, you know, the, the school treated them like junk. And she said, you're the junkyard wonders. And she, you know, gave them the confidence and saw in something great in them. And then the end of the story is like all the things these kids went on to do. And it's totally amazing. And so she, and she talks in another book about like a gay classmate who went on to be like the choreographer for like, I think it was the New York City Ballet or something like that. So really amazing stories as relevant today as when, you know, she was writing them beautifully told and beautifully illustrated. And I think even for neurotypical cisgendered kids to know what it's like to be the kid who is different in some way, we're all different in some way, but some in much more prevalent ways and in ways that are unfortunately um, not celebrated. So they've been great books for my kids when my daughter became she's dyslexia and ADHD. I wanted to do everything I could to help her feel like this was a superpower as it has been for her dad and not a weakness. I love it. So great books for, for that. We have to go. I mean, I'm going to read this. I'm going to order it immediately. <laughs> it sounds amazing. And I love the title too, the junkyard wonders. I love it. Well, you know, thank you so much, Giselle, Mayor Giselle Hill. Thank you so much for being on our podcast today. You were a fantastic guest. You taught us so much. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you soon. And I know we both have to go because we have some monumental work to do. We do. Keep doing that monumental work. And let me know when you're up in the Bay Area next. Love to see you live. I will. I'd love to see you live too. All Um, right. So good to see you. Thank you for doing this. Bye everybody. Keep in touch. Thank you so much for listening. Please write us a review if you liked us. Tell us what you think. Follow us on Instagram at monumental.podcast or at Jesse C. Draper and tell us who you want to hear from and how you think we can solve child care. Also, please give us five stars.